Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, an author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dorothy Community. She's the director of the bioethics programs at the Makula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. She works at the intersection of digital ethics in healthcare and law and focuses on the ethical problems associated with personalized medicine and the processing of health-related data. She received her master's degree in bioethics from Harvard University. Hi, Dorothy. Welcome to Fixing Healthcare. Hello, good afternoon, and thank you for having me, Robert. This is the start of season nine. Our focus will be end-of-life issues. And as the director of bioethics at the Makula Center, you're the perfect first guest. As you know, medicine has advanced so far that we can now extend, I'll say in quotes, life, defined by heart beating and lungs working and brain functioning, seemingly, again in quotes, forever. In fact, during COVID-19, we were able to preserve life for years without relying on a patient's biological heart or lung. As with so many advances, this remarkable ability raises a litany of ethical questions. So let me start with the traditional medical teaching that we say we should save a life at any cost. As an ethicist, do you believe this is always true? So thank you for this first question. We shouldn't save life at any cost, in my opinion. Uh, I think there are very clear principles that apply and that should apply to this topic as well. And there is always a balance to find between, you know, the advantages and the burden of saving lives. And, you know, you mentioned technology and recent technology and COVID-19, but actually already in the 90s, that question arised. For instance, with Terry Schiavo, which was, you know, a, a young lady that had a heart stopped suddenly and that remained under, you know, several machines for more than 15 years. So indeed, as you said, rightfully, uh, we could extend lives forever. And at some point, we need to decide whether or not this makes sense. Could you expand on what you mean by making sense? So to me, again, it's a question of balance and it's a question of finding what you are trying to achieve there. You know, does it make any sense to keep someone like Terry, for instance, to take that case alive for more, more years just because technology allows that? Uh, this is a real question. And at, at some, I mean, the question is, at what point should we stop? And at what point should we acknowledge that what, what we are trying to achieve uh, basically is not in line with what is ethical? So I understand that if someone is so far gone and so unlikely to recover, they might fall into this category. 
But let's step back a half step. Is there a line where a patient in the ICU feels that they're really being tortured, stuck with needles and knives and other treatments rather than in uh, being treated? By that, I mean that the outcome of all of it might not be death forever or inability to ever come out of coma forever, but it is not a life that's particularly good. And we should recognize that maybe from an ethical perspective, doing more harm by prolonging treatment than by stopping it. Absolutely. And, you know, in this case, I would like, of course, to call the principle of autonomy of the patient. So there is a lot to say there. But I would say that we had cases in the past, again, that could show that at some point, you know, the patient has the right to decide whether or not he's going to accept or refuse the treatment. And we had a very well-known case, which is the Dax cohort case. I don't know if you remember that case in the 80s, but basically Dax cohort had a very awful accident, an explosion that uh, left him blind without the usage of his hands and actually very much burned on the two-thirds of his body. And because the treatment uh, to, to kind of heal his um, body was so painful, several times he, he, he said that he was refusing treatment, basically refusing the fact that they were disinfecting his skin. And everybody knew that by stopping that, he would die. And this is what he wanted. And of course, there is a question of whether or not the patient is capable of making that kind of decision. And this is always a question that must remain. You know, We need to assess the capacity of the patient. But in, in Dax's cohort case, if I remember correctly, his psychiatrist basically said that he was totally capable of making that decision. And yet, back then, it was even the 70s, if I remember correctly, back then, he was refused that right. And he, he was forced to stay alive. And of course, you know, that story that I explained to my students is very interesting because Dax lived many more years after that, because, you know, the first period was, was very painful, but then it got better. And eventually, you know, he healed and he, he could have a kind of meaningful life. He even studied law and became a lawyer. And at some point, one of the journalists years later asked him, well, now that you saw all what happened, all the good that happened, following your accident and the fact that you remained alive, you know, you became a lawyer, you can defend clients and you can really defend the right for autonomy. Would you have made a different choice or decision, you know? And his answer was no. He said, no, I'm still convinced that the patient has the right to autonomy and the right to refuse a treatment and the right to basically decide to die. And this is exactly what happened, not what happened to Dax, but what happened later on, you know, courts uh, recognized that right to refuse treatment. And basically, in some cases, it means the right to die. 
again, let me push another step. Let's assume that you're a physician. There's a patient who comes to you in exactly this condition, serious burn with loss of vision and maybe use of the arms or the legs. And there's no one else, the patient's unconscious and there's no one else around to make the de determination. How as an ethicist, if they called you up, how would you advise the physician whether to begin treatment, knowing that the patient would then be left in this state forever versus holding back treatment and being able to allow nature to take its course? So luckily, in most of the cases similar to that one, we have either advanced directives that can tell us as physicians what we should be doing because the patient, when he was still conscious and capable of making a decision, decided that in this or that case, he wanted to have this kind of treatment or, you know, uh, not to be resuscitated, the DNR that we all know, the DNR order. Or we have family members that can make that decision. If there is really no one, the way we proceed usually is by calling an ethics committee. So it's not one person who has to decide. We collectively make a decision based on the circumstances of the case. So there is no black or white decision for sure, but there are principles that apply among which, you know, non-maleficence and any other relevant facts that can guide the ethics committee to help making a decision for the physician and with the physician and the hospital. How do you recommend a physician decide that care is, and I'll use the word futile, and by that, I mean, there's always a possibility. There's always, well, not always, but almost always, there's a possibility of a miracle, a one in a hundred, a one in a thousand chance. And yet doctors have to educate the family about this type of problem. Where would you draw the line on futility when it comes to administering sophisticated and advanced healthcare? So I think that there is a discussion that needs to happen between the physician and the family members when there are, you know, some kind of disagreements on that topic specifically. And of course, you know, the physicians doesn't have the obligation to do whatever the patient or their family member requests, right? Basically, they have the right to refuse to provide a certain treatment. For instance, you as a physician would have the right to say no to a patient who wants to get uh, his leg amputated without no reasons, right? So in that case, you know, it would be ethically correct to say no. But then of course, you also have the opposite case of people who want to ask the physician to do whatever is possible and feasible and for a very long time. And at some point, the physician can refuse and say, this is going too far. So I believe it's all a question of, you know, finding an agreement between the family members or the patient and the physician and uh, or the hospital uh, in order to find the best option for the patient always. And so, of course, certain treatments are futile Others are not. And sometimes, you know, the patient or their family members would decide to move the patient from an hospital to another 
And this is also a possibility, in my opinion, in certain cases, especially because, as I said, the physician has the right to refuse, which means that, you know, what is the limit to me as a physician might be a different limit to you as a physician. And so we saw a case uh, related to that with Jehai McMath, who was a young teenager. She was uh, even a child back then who became, according to, you know, the state law, brain death after surgery. And the family members refused that and actually moved Jehai McMath from one hospital in one state to another, where actually they could ask, you know, for uh, Jehai to remain alive on machines. And this is what happened. So the case of Jehai McMath is a very well-known case uh, around brain death, for instance. But I can see the link with futility, you know. Maybe at some point in the first state, the physician said, okay, she's brain dead and therefore we are going to remove all the machines and she will die. While, you know, in another state, they might say, no, this is not futile because actually the line where brain death happens is not really clear. Sometimes it's blurry. And therefore, we are going to respect the family member's wishes to try to keep her on a machine in order to see whether or not she could recover consciousness, for instance, or she could live longer uh, in a meaningful way. So, again, futility is a very, very difficult term, and it depends very much on the circumstances. So... It's all a question of finding agreements, and it should be a question of finding agreements for cases that are not very clear. In patients who have a workplace injury, we have a scale by which we quantify the problems that exist. And I've often wondered in end of life, not that we necessarily use the scale, but that we might want to have a sense of the negativity, the loss How do we define what it means to lose your ability to swallow? So you're only fed through a tube and you never get a chance to taste or smell food again, or at least taste food again. You know, what would it mean to not be able to speak, to not be able to see? This is not the value in a newborn who can learn the various skills. This would be the end of the life reality for someone's existence. Has anyone tried to ever quantify some of these, I'll say both positive and negative aspects of life when once facing death? So I'm sure that some people did. I cannot uh, cite any examples of that, but I'm sure some people did try to quantify. But I would say at the end of the day, uh, the choice comes to the patient. And suffering, for instance, you know, being in pain might be different for you that is different for me. So being in pain might be uh, something unbearable for you in certain cases, while for me, it could still be acceptable. So even if we try to quantify what is a quality of life and what it includes, I think that the best way to go is really to follow the patient's wish and make sure that the patient's autonomy prevails in that case. You know, we we need to make sure that if someone like, just to take your example, someone who is at the end of his life decides that he doesn't have enough quality of life, 
because of various reasons or even one only reason, then the approach should be very compassionate and, you know, should be to listen to that person and to find the best solution for that person. You very articulately and clearly explained this end of the life conundrum. Let me flip it around a little bit and ask you about physician-assisted death, which would be in response to all the same reasons someone might choose to not have their life prolonged. Now they want to have their life ended. What is the ethical principles surrounding that? So in California, we call it, as far as I know, medical aid in dying. And the principles around that are the principles of beneficence and the principle of autonomy. So beneficence, meaning that when you are able to end the suffering of someone who is asking for it, of course, this is voluntarily, who is asking for it, and you are able to end that suffering and to, in that sense, produce some good to the person because that person is not forced to suffer any longer, just like Dax Coward had to, for instance, then the idea is that you should do it from a moral standpoint. And then there's this principle of autonomy that it's very, very important in this case, saying or mentioning that if the patient requires that, so there is a voluntary you know, request that is free from any coercion, that is free from any influence, and that is really what the patient wants and for his own reasons, then the patient should have, from a moral standpoint, the right to die according to his terms. And so I think that those two principles are the ones that come when we talk about medical aid in dying. In the states, which is the majority that don't have this medically assisted uh, death, what is the ethical arguments that people make as to why it should not exist? So I think one of the more prominent uh, discussion that we have nowadays is the distinction between killing someone or letting him die. And I'm not a philosopher, as you know, but I can try to explain it to you <laughs> in a clear way. So killing someone would be active euthanasia. For instance, you know, giving a patient, following, of course, his request, always, giving a patient, you know, a lethal injection of some product that would make him die, basically. Or we also have medical aid in dying, which is different, where actually you don't do any lethal injection to your patient, but you write a prescription for him to get some medicine and to self-ingest those medicine by himself in order to die. Because those are uh, medicine at a very specific dose that can kill him. So those two are actually considered, as far as I understand, as killing someone. This is different from the letting die approach where 
the idea is not doing something in order to preserve someone's life. For instance, uh, not performing a very life-saving surgery in order for someone to stay alive or not giving someone a feeding tube in order for this person to stay alive. So this is more the letting die where actually the person dies from her condition or, you know, from the fact that we didn't save her. But it's in the mind of many philosophers, this is different from killing. And I believe that in those states where medical aid in dying is not allowed, the letting die component is still permissible and morally accepted. So meaning that, you know, we could decide not to provide a feeding tube to someone who is in hospital and needs it, or we could decide even to withdraw some life-saving treatments from that person. And this is still different in many people's minds from, you know, medical aid in dying or even active euthanasia with a lethal injection. I understand that when it comes to ethics, one has to find a line in the midst of a lot of gray, but it sounds to me a little bit as though it's a semantic differentiation. I'm not quite sure that that's truly, I'll say, ethical, at least from my perspective. Um, if someone comes in with a severe burn and I don't start IV fluids, they're going to die. In fact, it's even more guaranteed than if I were to give them a lethal injection. And in fact, it may be more painful and uncomfortable to not give them the fluids than if I gave them uh, an IV uh, shot that would make their heart stop and let them uh, die peacefully. Is this ethical line just the best that we can do? Or do you see that there's something, I understand the difference between killing and uh, letting nature take its course, but sometimes I think letting nature take its course is killing because we know exactly what is going to happen if someone is shot and they're bleeding. Uh, they're going to die if you don't do something. It's exactly the same as doing something to them. Again, for me as a physician, it seems that way. How do the ethicists uh, justify drawing this relatively sharp line, or is it just a legal requirement? So I don't know about the legal requirements because, you know, the law might be different in different states, but I know that this is a discussion that many ethicists have been having and a difference that has been discussed. And of course, not everyone agrees with that. I totally would like to, uh, to highlight that. Not everyone agrees with that distinction. And some people even say that there is no distinction between, you know, basic passive euthanasia, as we would call it, right? Which is, you know, withdrawing life-saving treatment, for instance, and active euthanasia as the lethal injection, or even with medical aid in dying. Because in all those cases, some people would argue that you are still, you know, doing something. Even the fact that not doing something, you know, in the case of passive euthanasia, is still doing something, still making a choice about which you know the exact consequences, which is death, right? And so some people would argue that all this is actually morally equivalent and that we don't need to make all these distinctions as long as someone is helping you to die, being through a lethal injection, being through um, a medical prescription, or being through removing the, the feeding tube, 
in all cases, it's helping the person to die. And why do you do that? Out of compassion, of course, because the person is suffering. And out of this desire and principle of beneficence, because you have the power to alleviate that suffering. And so because of that, you are going to help that person who requires it. And again, I insist on that. It's always a voluntarily act, right? We are not going to do it to someone who didn't ask for it or who didn't leave us with uh, advanced directives very clear or uh, with you know a surrogate who is going to make that decision okay and so yes this is really challenging in a way this semantic approach or concern that you have and as i said many people think that this is not justifiable and you know it makes me think of another kind of uh, theory that we have in bioethics, which is the, the doctrine of double effect. I don't, I don't know if you have ever heard about this one, but basically, you know, it's the distinction between intending someone's death and not intending, but foreseeing it. Many people know that injecting morphine to someone at a very high dosage will make this person die. But according to the doctrine of double effect, it is wrong to intentionally harm someone, in this case, causing their death, to produce a good result, which is uh, releasing from suffering, right? But it is permissible to do something intending to produce a good result, which is release from suffering, even if the action leads to unintended but foreseen harm, which is the death. In other words, you know, the difference is that in the former, a bad thing is directly intended, while in the latter, a bad thing is not intended, but only foreseen. And basically, what many people argue is that injecting a very high dose of morphine to relieve suffering is morally permissible, even if you know that the person might die, while, you know, if you injected it, in order to make this person die, this would not be permissible. It's just a parallel that I wanted to make with what we said just before, you know. Again, it's a question of definition and it's a question of how people feel about what they do. And I think we can link that to the kind of moral responsibility. And I understand why, you know, many physicians don't want to take that moral responsibility and want to leave it with uh, the patient or, you know, want to kind of hide, if I may say that, behind the doctrine of double effect. But many other bioethicists or physicians argue that all this is actually a little bit hypocrite and might say that, you know, at the end of the day, again, we all know what a high dose of morphine will do on a patient. So why not calling it and just, you know, acknowledge that what we are doing is helping someone to die and it's okay because, you know, we respected many, many conditions and we are morally clear in the sense that we applied the bioethics principles and we are convinced that this is the right thing to do. 
From a purely ethical and non-legal standpoint, what are your thoughts on people who want to end their own life but are not terminally ill? Uh, someone who is healthy but suffering from crippling depression or some other mental health disorder and has for years tried every form of treatment. Uh, they thought long and hard about it and have decided to take their own life and they want to use medical aid in dying. Um, where should it be decided that it is or isn't ethical? You know, a severely depressed 21-year-old or a former soldier who's suffering from PTSD in their 30s or maybe even someone who lost their wife and kids in a tragic car accident and no longer wants to live, or even a person in their 70s who's alone and depressed, has no friends and family, and just wants to die before dealing with the effects of old age. There's so many different scenarios where someone you know, may want to die and have decided they want to die with the medical aid and dying route, but are not terminally ill or suffering any sort of uh, physical pain. Uh, from a purely ethical standpoint, what are your thoughts on this and where and how do you draw that line of when and when it should not be acceptable? So if we have all the safeguards in place that help us and certify that there is no coercion or there is no influence whatsoever, um, I think we need to think about what we are trying to achieve through the medical aid in dying. And the medical aid in dying is really to relieve suffering. And I believe that suffering might come from disease, certainly from cancer or all those other diseases that are really awful to go through. But I must also acknowledge that suffering can also come from other kinds of diseases like mental health diseases or mental health suffering. And I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'm convinced that the suffering that one can experience through mental health disease or suffering or struggling might be as unbearable as a suffering coming from uh, cancer, for instance. And so what I would like to suggest is really in all cases, not only for mental health, but also for cancer patients, the approach should always be, be compassionate. So if there is another way to relieve that suffering through, you know, for instance, palliative care for cancer patients, we should use that as much as we can in order to relieve that suffering. And likewise, for mental health patients, if there is another way through therapy, you know, with psychiatrists or through any other way, meditation, you name it, you know, if there is a way to relieve that suffering, then we should surely try that way first. But we also need to acknowledge that for some people, there is no other way, especially when people suffer mental health issues or diseases for a long period of time. And so, in my humble opinion, we should have a compassionate approach to those people as well that are not terminally ill, but that are suffering so much that are, they are asking for help. And when you ask for help, we as a society have a duty, a moral obligation to help. So we just need to find the best way to help in every cases, depending on every circumstances that we have. But sometimes the best way to help 
for certain cases, extreme cases, might be, you know, to offer medical aid in dying. And actually, in Belgium, we had a case like that with a young lady who was suffering mental health issues for a very long period of time. And because the Belgian law allows this person to get euthanasia, that person went through all the process, which includes many safeguards, you know, to make sure that everything is ethical and legal in that case. But once that, that person went through all those, you know, I could see how it was acceptable to actually help her die. Of course, always with the, the main point, which is that the person needs to ask for it. It's always voluntarily without coercion or any influence ever. So yes, to your question. Do you feel like there should be an age limit on that? Obviously, you know, someone who's 20 years old and somebody who's 70 year old are in two very different situations, but saying it is a, a mental health thing and not a terminal illness thing. Do you feel like there should be some sort of age limit on it? So the age limit is a very interesting question again, because as you might know, in certain countries, the age limit is not the same than in others. So in this case, um, the, the examples you gave, should there be an age limit uh, between, you know, a 20-year-old or 70-year-old? I don't think so, personally. I don't think so because both are capable of making their decision and have the right to autonomy, so the right to decide for themselves. So I wouldn't make a difference between a 20-year-old and a 70-year-old in that case, provided, of course, that both have capacity, right? But I would make a difference with minors. So people under the age of 18, for instance, Belgium allowed minors to actually ask for euthanasia when they are terminally ill. And when I was a student myself in bioethics, I ended up writing about it, something that was never published. It was just an essay that I submitted to my uh, professor. But, you know, I questioned that. I really asked myself, okay, should we allow children, actually, or minors, to basically receive euthanasia in that case, so a little injection? And this case, you know, this case was really heartbreaking to me. Because, you know, being a mother or being around many kids, I couldn't imagine that. And the main argument I would offer in this regard is the consent of the patient. When you are over 18, you can legally consent to uh, a medical treatment or to medical aid in dying in this case. But when you are a minor, there is no consent per se. There is only an assent, which is the fact that you can agree with what has been decided by your parents, basically. But there is no legal consent. And I think there is, there is a reason for that. I don't believe that a minor has the same capacity to make that kind of decision than uh, someone who is over 18. And therefore, I don't believe that we should offer that kind of solution to minors. Is it ever appropriate for, you know, the doctors to kind of convince, you know, that person who's hanging on 
by that last thread with cancer, hospice might be the best option for them, or even, you know, maybe not medical aid and dying, but transitioning to hospice care from endless rounds of chemo. But their family is pressuring them to do everything they can to stay alive as long as possible, even though this person might have uh, in their own mind, hey, I might just want to stop suffering and, and transfer to hospice care now. How do you have that conversation with them as well as with their family who you know, desperately doesn't want to lose that family member regardless of them being suffering? So I, I know that the hospice and palliative care are really underused in the United States. And I would encourage really to um, our society to fix that because I believe that there is a lot of solution to find in hospice and palliative care uh, that could prevent, you know, people from thinking about medical aid in dying. And so I would encourage that patient to go there and to go there on time and not just for the very last, you know, days or week of uh, his life. Because according to the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, in 2018, only 14% of hospice users were enrolled for the six-month benefit period, with 27% enrolled for less than one week and 53% enrolled for less than one month, which means that, you know, we are really underusing this service that our society is providing. And what should happen is exactly the opposite. We should bring more social services, more hospice and palliative care services to our fellow human beings, just because these are amazing options and these are options that work very well to help a majority of people and of patients having the suffering released. So if a patient would come to me and ask me to go to an hospice or palliative care service, of course, I would help this person getting there. And what the family members would say, I mean, if that person has capacity, if the patient has full capacity to make the decision, uh, what kind of pressure the family member would put on that patient wouldn't matter. I understand why states have put in place some restrictions on medically assisted uh, dying uh, and limited it to patients with only a specific number of months likely to live and the ability to take those pills that you said were prescribed themselves. But there are other conditions where that's just either not possible, such as the patient with the incredibly severe pain, inability to walk out in public, uh, inability to eat well, to have other people be around him or her, or, and I think a problem that is becoming even more pervasive is that of Alzheimer's disease. So let me pose to you a couple of scenarios and see what you would think about them as an ethicist. Let's just say that I have completely normal mind right now. Some listeners might question that, but let's say I have normal mind and ability to decide and I very clearly, with uh, five people in attendance, including ethicists, say that at the point that my ability to recognize family members, the ability to uh, have memory and cognition disappear, that I no longer want to live. Is there a way to fulfill 
And I think you used the phrase autonomy against um, benevolence. Is there a way to preserve my autonomy in an ethical type of way from a societal perspective in the future? So let me ask a question about this scenario. Are you sick and suffering in that scenario or are you just in good health and just want to die because of other reasons? Today, I am just fine. I'm in good health and I have uh, good mental facilities, but I've seen enough people, let's say, with advanced Alzheimer's, and I cannot imagine any circumstance in which I would see that as a positive life and mm -hmm. want to go on living. And so in order to preserve my autonomy, recognizing that when that time comes, I won't have the intellectual function to make that determination. Mm -hmm. That now we can say that I want to have informed consent completed and I want it to be documented that I would like the doctors to take action to terminate my life to the same extent that were I needing intubation to survive, I'd want them not to intubate me. So very clearly defined, full knowledge, but inability to have that autonomy over my own life. Is there an ethical way that you could see, not today, but in the future, making that possible? So thank you for your question. And you're asking from a personal opinion, right? A personal opinion with, with, with a tremendous background in ethics. So you have all the knowledge back behind you. That's why I'm asking you as an expert, not a random person. So not from a legal standpoint, because of course, all laws are different and states are different and countries. So I'm not taking the legal standpoint here, but only the ethical standpoint. Yes. If I were a physician and you had an advanced directive, mention exactly what you just said, and you end up with a, a very serious case of Alzheimer where you don't want to live anymore, uh, but you don't have capacity then, but you had capacity before to say that, you know, in your advanced directive, if I ever end up with Alzheimer and I meet that and that and that criteria, I would like to die. You know, and I would like uh, you as a physician to help me with that. So through medical aid in dying, for instance, I personally would immediately take action to help you and to fulfill your wishes. Sounds as though the big hurdle is going to be legal as opposed to ethical. Yes, it is legal. But again, I'm not speaking about the legal aspect. I'm speaking about... I'm speaking about the ethical aspect and the reason why I would do that from an ethical standpoint is to respect your dignity, because as you said, you know, not everyone, unfortunately, can preserve their dignity towards the end of life. And some circumstances are really heartbreaking. And, you know, if I had an advanced directive where the person would have written that to preserve their dignity, they would rather you know, ask me to help them die. If I had that advanced directive, I will do it, absolutely. To preserve your dignity and out of compassion. So again, there is nothing more than that, in my opinion, in this whole end of life discussion. It's really about compassion and putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And thinking, okay, if this was me, would I appreciate the fact that someone helped me? And the answer is yes, I would. 
And so because of that, I would help someone else achieve that personally. You are not only a recognized expert on ethics in the United States, but around the world. What can we learn from other nations about compassionate end-of-life care? In California, because I know more about California than about Oregon or the other, the other states who uh, authorize medical aid in dying, you need to be terminally ill in order to receive the right to go through medical aid in dying, right? I know that other countries are more open to other circumstances. For instance, Canada has a law that doesn't require the patient to be terminally ill. And so I think it's more open in a way, in that way. And they also have had discussion around, you know, the illness by itself. So in California, for instance, we know that more than 60% of people who are asking medical aid in dying are suffering from cancer. And so basically this is the main reason, the, the suffering behind it that lead them to ask for medical aid in dying. But the question in other countries is, okay, should we focus on, you know, terminally ill patient with serious illnesses like cancer, or should we open this up to other kinds of condition like mental health conditions? And so for instance, in Belgium, it is allowed since 2002, if I'm not mistaken, to actually receive help in dying if you have a mental health condition, sorry. When we started this season, Dorothy, we wanted to expand people's perspectives and generate intense debate. You've provided a tremendous amount of information. I'm sure you've stimulated a lot of thinking and probably raised a little bit of ire, and that's exactly what's needed. There are no right answers when it comes to the end of life dilemma, but bringing in an ethicist like yourself is a great first start. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Thank you. And thank you for your time, both of you, Jeremy and Robert. It was a real pleasure talking to you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.